Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money for your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey guys, this is Crime Candy here with another story with another interesting episode. So today I thought to start off season two, I found thought of finding a really cool, actually really interesting case that was involved in the the Gilded Age of America, generally the nineteen hundreds and such, uh, that involves an affair. So this case has everything from murder, murder and sex. So, without further further ado, let's get started. So, 15-year-old Evelyn Nesbitt came to New York City in December 1900 to continue a modeling career that had begun to blossom in her home state of Pennsylvania. Within days of arrival, one of the city's most respected painters, James Carroll Beckwith, hired what he called this perfectly formed nymph, nymph to pose twice a week at his 57th Street studio. Soon Nesbitt, with her fresh and inscrutable face, found herself in great demand for modeling jobs, both among photographers and portrait artists. The girl dubbed by reporters as Little Sphinx appeared on postcards and magazines such as Cosmopolitan, Vanity Fair, Harper's Bazaar, and the Ladies' Home Journal. Evelyn Nesbitt became America's first genuine pinup girl, her stunning looks overcame a lack of training as an actress. When in May 1901, she accepted a role as the chorus girl in Broadway's most popular musical of the day, Floridora, Flor- 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 I guess. So Nesbitt's charm attracted the interest of Stanford White's, New York City's most famous architect. White design landmarks could be found all over the city from his Washington Memorial Arch to the Bowery Saving Banks to the Gold Library at NYU. White's Madison Square Garden, a large entertainment center in Spanish Renaissance mode, was a site for concerts, horse shows, balls, exhibitions, and live theater. The building featured a soaring, elegant tower, then the city's highest Topped by a scandalously nude 13-foot statue of Diana shooting a bow and arrow. White biographer Brendan Gill described the architect as a big, bluff, open-level man of superior talents and the predatory satire. Stanford White had nearly insatiable desire for young girls and wild sex. In 1887, White and a group of fellow New York New York City libertarians started the Sewer Club, a place for drinking and wild and sexual excess. Girls seemed to find White's money and power irresistible, 
enabling him to keep several fears going at a time. 46-year-old Stanford White persuaded another chorus girl to arrange Evelyn Nesbitt's attendance at what Nesbitt came to assume was a society luncheon at a posh New York City venue. Instead, Nesbitt's introduction to White came came at lunch for just four at the Architects, West 24th Street Apartments. Later, Evelyn recalled thinking White terribly old, but she found instantly found attractive White's, White's boundless playfulness. After lunch, White led Evelyn and her friendly friend to an upstairs room where a red velvet swing hung suspended from the ceiling. White urged Nesbitt onto the swing, gave several vigorous pushes, and then laughed and clapped with delight as the young object of his fancy soared toward the ceiling. Over the course of the next several weeks, Stanford White won the confidence of Evelyn's protective yet gullible mother, with Mrs. Nesbitt convinced that the clever and kindly White had only a paternal interest in her daughter's welfare. She gave her blessing to Evelyn's attendance at a series of lunches and parties hosted by the architect. Miss Nesbitt's decision to encourage relationship doubtless was made easier by White's generosity. She began calling it Stanley their benefactor. Evelyn, her mother, and White became words of the young model, fast friends. After two months after the relationship began, Mrs. Nesbitt took a trick trip back home to Pittsburgh after White promised to pay the fare and make all necessary arrangements. Before she left, Mrs. Nesbitt made Elvin, Evelyn promise to see no one other than Mr. White while she was gone. A few days later, the inevitable happened. A cab requested by White deposited Evelyn, who was expecting to be entertained, at another party at his apartment. There were no guests to be found. White apologized, explained that all his other invitations were turned down, but they make the best of the evening. The champagne flowed freely, and before long, Nesbitt, or Evelyn, according to her account, passed out. When she found her, when she awoke, she found herself flying nude on silk sheets in a mirrored canopy bed. A streak of blood browned down her inner thigh. As Evelyn started to cry, White passed her kimono and said, Don't cry, kittens. It's all over. Now you belong to me. And I'm also going to mention, White was in his upper 40s and Evelyn was only 15. So, unfortunately, you guessed it, he raped her and pretty much claimed her as her possession. And, unfortunately, that is how their relationships started. Which, in my opinion, is incredibly disgusting. It took Evelyn several days to sort out her complicated feelings but eventually she returned to the man she later called her benevolent vampire. For the next six months, White and Evelyn saw each other almost daily. For her 17th birthday in December 1901, White presented Evelyn with a pearl necklace, three diamond rings, and a set of white fox furs. 
Evelyn soared again on the red velvet swing, but not always with her clothes. Decades later, in her memoirs, Evelyn would save the middle-aged man she gave her virginity to. Stanford White was a great man. That did that he did me wrong. That from certain moral standards he was perverse and decadent. It does not blind my judgments. In the late summer of 1902, a new and younger man entered Evelyn's life. John Barrymore, a rakish 21-year-old newspaper sketch artist, met Evelyn at one of White's festive parties in the tower of his Madison Square Garden. When Sanford White set off for Canada on a two-week fishing trip, Barrymore made his move and soon the young couple's budding relationship became a focus of town gossip. When Miss Nesbitt learned of her daughter's new love, she swept into action, asking Sanford White to intervene and break up the relationship. Faced with a two-pronged attack from White and her mother, Evelyn reluctantly agreed to hastily throw together a plan to roll her in a boarding school in New Jersey. Meanwhile, yet another man had been watching her every move. To Evelyn, during the run of the show Wild Rose in which she starred, Mr. Monroe was just one of the countless men who seemed to have a crush on her. Mr. Monroe attended 40 performances of Wild Rose and regularly sent Evelyn flowers, letters, and offers of larger gifts. He also asked for dates, which Evelyn politely declined. Mr. Monroe was, in fact, eccentric millionaire Harry K. Thaw from Pittsburgh. Thaw's interest in Evelyn seemed to have its source in Thaw's obsessive hatred of Sanford White, who he believed was blackmailing him from New York City clubs he sought to join, and who he considered to be a wholesale ravisher of young girls. Fueling Thaw's love of Evelyn was his desire to protect Evelyn from the dastardly Mr. White. In 1902, Mr. Monroe finally succeeded through an intermediary in arranging a lunch day with Evelyn. Meeting her for the first time in a restaurant at high tea, Mr. Monroe fell to his knees, kissed the hem of Evelyn's dress, and pronounced Evelyn to be the prettiest girl in New York City. Thaw was nothing if not persistent in his courtship of his dream girl, and in due time revealed himself with great flourish to be the very rich Harry Kendall Thaw of Pittsburgh. Evelyn later wrote, a disguised Napoleon revealing himself to be a nearsighted veteran on Elba could not have made the revelation with greater aplomb. In April of 1903, while nearing the end of her term at boarding school, Evelyn developed acute appendicitis, requiring life-saving surgery. Thaw rushed to her hospital room and kissed Evelyn's shaking hand. During the operation, Thaw and Miss Nesbitt discussed Evelyn's future. A few minutes later, which Evelyn would later call the worst mistake of her life, she and her mother and Harry Thaw sailed from New York for an extended vacation in Europe. In a Paris hotel suite at Thaw's urging, Evelyn Nesbitt told the story of her champagne-fueled flowering two years earlier in Stanford's White Mirror. As she did so, Harry shuddered, gasped, whimpered, and went lip. And I'm sorry, folks, that is not deflowering. It is essentially rape. She was raped, not deflowered. I'm just going to put that out there. Over and over again, he said, poor child, poor child, or... Oh, God, 
Oh, God. The story of that fall night on 24th Street would continue for years to haunt the mind of Harry K. Thaw. Weeks later, after her mother had sailed back to the U.S., Evelyn found herself with Harry in a rented castle in rural Austria. In her biography of Evelyn, American Eve, Paulu describes the castle as a huge gothic nightmare of cold stones and dimly lit draft ways, drafty passageways, grimmer than anything in the Grimm Brothers' tales. On her first night at the castle, asleep in her bedroom, Evelyn was suddenly awakened by a bug-eyed, seething, and stark, startlingly naked Harry, who threw her coverings aside and began lashing her legs with a leather riding, riding crop. Harry then tore the noggin off her ble- off the bleeding Evelyn and proceeded to rape her, screaming all the time about Stanford White and his debauch- debauchery. One would not think after that nightmarish assault in a castle that a marriage between Harry and Evelyn would be possible. Yet it happened. Two years of nonstop pursuit aided by a more salacious tone, lavish spending, and considerable attention to her mother landed Thaw his prize. On April 5, 1905, in a private ceremony in Pittsburgh, Evelyn Nesbitt became Mrs. Harry K. Thaw. The couple moved into a large, depressing Pittsburgh mansion that was also home to Harry's mother. For the next 14 months, Evelyn spent much of her time feeling like a bird in a gilded cage. So in the murder... In th- Sorry. So in the spring of 1906, Evelyn and Harry decided to take a trip to England. Harry scheduled a June, tw- a June 28th sailing on a Germany luxury liner from the port of New York. Plans were made to spend a week in the city before heading off across the Atlantic. Around 6 o'clock on June 25th, Evelyn left her suite in the Lorraine Hotel on 5th Avenue Evelyn met Harry at a nearby bar, where he already put three drinks already under his belt and paid the $3 bar tab with a $100 bill, which makes no sense. And then the couple headed off to the Cafe Martin. In the course of a dinner at Cafe Martin, shared with two friends, Evelyn was startled to see Sanford White, accompanied by his son, walk into the restaurant. In spite of the near-record heat of the day, Evelyn, as she later recalled, went cold with fear for her husband's reaction if he were to spot the architects. Sensing a chain in his wife's mood, Harry asked Evelyn if anything was wrong. She scribbled a note. The bee was here, but has left. After reading the note, Harry kept his motions surprisingly well in check. It seemed to Evelyn until after dinner that he retrieved his straw hat from a cloakroom attendant. Harry slammed the hat on his head with such force as to crack the brim. As they left the restaurant, Harry announced he had bought tickets for a new musical, Mademoiselle Champagne, playing at none other than the Madison Square Garden's open-air rooftop theater. Sometime during the show, Harry learned that Stanford White planned to catch part of the show. Later, witnesses reported seeing Thaw pacing around the rear of the theater like a caged tiger. Shortly before 11 o'clock, with the show approaching its conclusion, White took his customary seat at a small table, five roses, five rows from the stage. It took Harry a few minutes to become aware of his arch enemy's entrance, but once he did, he stood up with a dazed look in his eyes. 
Evelyn suggested that they leave, and they began heading towards the elevator. As Evelyn conversed briefly with a friend, Harry slipped away. As the as the line of chorus girls sang, I could love a thousand girls. The audience heard a burst of gunfire, followed by quickly by two more shots. Evelyn knew immediately what had happened. He shot him, she cried, as the architect's blood poured on the tablecloth of his overturned table. Harry Shaw shouted his triumph. I did it because he ruined my wife. He had it coming to him. He took advantage of the girl and then deserted her. White had been shot twice in the head and once in the shoulder. The first shot was fired from a distance of about 12 feet after Thaw had made a beeline to White's table and then pulled a revolver out from under his coat. The second and third shots came from even closer range, perhaps two or three feet away. Chaos ensued. Some members of the audience screamed while others rushed for the exits. Meanwhile, L. Lawrence, manager of the show, jumped on a table and commanded that the show go on. Go on playing, he yelled. Bring on the chorus. As Thaw was led away by a police officer, Evelyn said to her husband, Look at the fix you are in. It's all right, dear, Harry replied. I have probably saved your life. At 3 a.m. the next morning, Thaw was charged with murder and escorted from the police station house across the bridge of size into the tomb's prison, where he was locked in a human cell. Evelyn managed to escape the press, and she earned the name The Girl Houdini, and spent two sleepless nights holed up at the hotel at the apartment of a friend in the theater district. Meanwhile, the city was abuzz with rumors about possible motives for the killing. In Thomas Edison's studio work, worked overtime towards a film version of the rooftop murder in Nickelodeon's. Sorry about that. I was having some technical difficulties. Okay. So the original strategy of the district attorney, William T. Jerome, was to have Thaw declared legally insane and shipped off to an asylum. The state would save a great deal of money, and the theory seemed consistent with the defendant who shot his victim in front of 1,000 witnesses and then used every opportunity to boast about his good deed. Thaw's original attorney, Louis Delafield, seemed content to go along with the DA's approach, concluding it could be the only way his client could avoid the electric chair. Harry Thaw and he won no part of an insanity plea and quickly abled his attorney, the traitor, for even suggesting it. Three weeks after Delafield took the case, Thaw dismissed him. Harry looked forward to his trial and his chance to expose a set of perverts who preyed upon young girls and deserved nothing less than death. So, jury selection began in January 1907. After questioning 600 prospective jurors, a jury of 12 men was finally seated. Meanwhile, the proud Thaw family, unable to stomach a traditional insanity, insanity case, settled on proving through their own, through their new team of lawyers that Harry had experienced a brainstorm, a brainstorm, a brief bout of temporary insanity that could be expected of almost any American male to be put to the same stressors. 
To Prosecutor Jerome, the case was a simple one. Thaw killed White out of simple jealousy. Thaw was not Evelyn's savior, and Jerome intended to disprove any such suggestion. He told reporters that if Evelyn sought to portray her husband as a hero, he would tear her limb to limb and exhibit the interesting remains triumphantly, which is terrifying in my opinion. When the trial opened on February 4th of Justice James Fitzgerald, the prosecution delivered a seven-minute opening statement offered two hours of testimony outlining the bare events surrounding the rooftop murder and then rested its case. Eyewitness Warner Paxson describing the shooting and told jurors how he led Thaw out of the theater and down an elevator to where a police officer might be found. Paxson testified that Thaw explained as he was being led away, I did it because you ruined my wife. To which his wife responded, Yes, Harry, but look at the fix you're in now. Thaw replied to Evelyn, I probably saved your life. Coroner Timothy Kane, Timothy Kane testified that White died instantly from a cerebral hemorrhage as a result of pistol shot wounds in the skull. After a recess, defense attorney John B. Gleason gave his opening statement. As Harry Thaw sat with his eyes fixed on the table in front of him, Gleason, that the defense would primarily rest on evidence that the defendant killed White under the delusion that he was an agent of providence. Gleason said that Thaw had, for three years, been suffering from a disease of the brain, which culminated in the killing. Gleason blamed the insanity on two things, hereditary and stress. He promised jurors that he, they would learn from Evelyn Nesbitt's own lips about a conversation she had with Thaw in June 1903 that would account for Thaw's obsession with White. The first witness for the defense was Dr. C.C. C. Wiley, the Thaw family psychiatrist. Dr. Wiley testified that the murder was an act of an insane man and that Thaw's comment to his wife immediately after the shooting, I have probably saved your life, was an indication of insane delusion. Next on the stand was Benjamin Bowman, a doorkeeper at Madison Square Garden, who testified that in December 1903, Sanford White, in the belief that Evelyn had left the theater with Harry Thaw, pulled a pistol from his pocket and muttered, I'll find out and kill that and kill that's vulgar team term admitted in record before daylight. Bowman said that he warned Thaw of White's threat and that Thaw became black in the face with anger. When they clearly overmatched, John Gleason withdrew, withdrew as defense attorney, Delphine Domas of San Francisco, famous for having never lost a case, was appointed the new lead counsel. With the appointment, the defense's strategy charged changed to one much more to Harry Thaw's liking. Instead of focusing on Harry's alleged madness, Delmas worked to make the jury hate Harry's victim so much that they could forgive his client's murder. No one, Delmas knew, was in a better position to make the jury despise Stanford White's than Nez Devlin. Nesbitt Thaw. At first, Evelyn was nauseous at the th thought of revealing, revealing her deepest, darkest secrets in public. 
but she finally consented to Delmas's urgent bleeding. The public eagerly anticipated the testimony of Evelyn, who took the stand on February 8th, and few hours of often tearful testimony, she took told a crowded and hushed courtroom her version of the events of the night of the murder. In response to questioning from Delphine Domas, Evelyn said she was not a bit interested in the play and suggested to Harry that they leave early. After Harry disappeared while she talked with another theatergoer on the way to the exit, she heard gunfire and said, I think he has shot him. Evelyn's description of a conversation with Harry on a June night in 1903 provided the day's most compelling testimony. Evelyn said that on that night, after Harry proposed marriage, she balked and began to cry. Harry suspected that she'd tell him the whole story of her first sexual encounter with the architects. Telling the story to jurors proved too much for Evelyn. She fell back to the witness stand and collapsed and murdered. I can't go on. I can't. I can't. After the courtroom windows were opened and, and restoratives of some sort applied to Nesbitt, to Evelyn by a doctor, she continued her testimony. Reaching the climax of her story, Evelyn fought back tears as she was told as she told what happened after an evening of drinking champagne in White's apartment. When I came to myself, I was greatly frightened and started to scream. Mr. White came and tried to quiet me. As I sat up, I saw mirrors all over. I began to scream again, and Mr. White asked me to keep quiet, saying that it was all over. When he threw the kimono over me, he left the room. I screamed la harder than ever. I don't remember much of anything after that. He took me home, and I sat up all night crying. Domas asked Evelyn what White told her after the night. Evelyn replied, He made me swear that I would never tell my mother about it. He said that it was all right, that there was nothing so nice as young girls and nothing so loathsome as fat ones. You must never get fat. According to a contemporary trial account, the jury gasped at every sentence, shuddered at every disclosure of the beautiful witness, in the navy blue suit, white linen collar, and black velvet hat with artificial violets. The next day, Evelyn testified about the intensifying feud between White and Thaw. She told jurors that after her return from a European trip with Thaw, White warned her to stay away from that morphine addict and arranged for her to meet an attorney, Abe Hummel, who could protect her from Thaw. She testified that Hummel put in an affidavit a lot of stuff that I had been carried away to Europe against my will, even though she told him I certainly had gone of my own accord. Evelyn testified that when she later told Harry about her encounter with White's lawyer, he became very much agitated and called Hummel a blackmailer. After her conversation with Harry, Evelyn went down to Hummel's office and demanded that the papers she signed be destroyed. Then they put the paper in a big jardinerie, she testified, and burn it. 
Evelyn said that any time thereafter that she reported to Harry about even the briefest chance encounter meeting with White, Harry bit his nails and looked excited. Domas quizzed Evelyn about some of the most some of the more scandalous episodes in White's past, including his infamous girl in a pie stag dinner. Evelyn te- testified that a girl about age 15 in a gauze dress was put in a big pie with a lot of birds. During the dinner, the girl jumped out of the pie and the birds flew all about the room. Evelyn said, I told Mr. White I'd heard later he had ruined the girl that night, but he only laughed. In his cross-examination of, Nez- of Evelyn, Jerome tried to sully Evelyn's reputation. Through a series of questions, Jerome suggested she had posed in the nude, but Evelyn, her cheeks lame with color, repeatedly denied ever appearing before a painter or photographer in the all together. She also denied engaging in unruly behavior or nighting a, so- a one such as sitting off alone with a man on a yacht. Jerome asked her whether prior to her heart to heart with Harry and Harry, Harry in Paris that she recognized that sexual activity with an older married man was wrong. Evelyn said she knew it was indelicate and vulgar, but that she didn't fully appreciate its wrongfulness until I went to Paris. She later admitted to developing a hostility against White for certain things that he had done, but refused to call it enmity. Evelyn admitted that for many months, White provided financial support for her and her mother. She surprised most in the courtroom by saying of White that except for having a strong personality, he had been a very grand man, who was very good to me and very kind. When I told Mr. Thaw this, he said it only made White all the more dangerous. Testifying that day was not easy for Evelyn. According to an account of the trial, her tears flowed almost constantly. The defense produced an affidavit from New York City's leading self-appointed defender of indecency, the Reverend Anthony Comstock. Comstock stated that he last saw Thaw about three weeks before he shot White. Harry was in a desperate state like a man who was nigh frantic. He said to me wildly, you must keep on, you must stop this man. He must be stopped now, at once. The defense also introduced a letter sent by Thaw to Comstock, which describes in words and drawings White wet, White's West 24 Studio, a place con- consecrated to debauchery, in which workmen outside the building have frequently heard the screams of young women. Thaw's letter included sketches of the red velvet swing and the mirrored bedroom. Psychiatrist Dr. Charles Wagner bolstered the defense's temporary insanity theory. Wagner said, Thaw acted out of a sudden impulse and had no idea of killing White up to the very time he shot him. Wagner said, Thaw told him, I knew he was a foul creature, destroying all mothers and daughters in America, but I wanted to bring him to trial. Thaw told him he fired the shot because Providence took care of it, Wagner said. Thaw only carried a gun that night out of fear of thugs and were that were hired agents of Stanford White's. Mrs. William Thaw, Harry's mother, was the fence's last witness. She testified that White had sent her son spinning into a downward emotional spiral. Harry said, repeatedly blamed White for who he called the worst man in New York for ruining his life. 
She told jurors that White caused her son to spend countless sleepless nights sobbing in bed. As Mrs. Thaw left the stand, Domas announced, The defense rests. Then in a startling change in course, apparently caused by Jerome's conclusion that the jury was buying, the defense temporary insanity and a death verdict was now unlikely. The prosecution suddenly changed course and sought to prove Thaw insane, both at the time of the murder and at the president's. Jerome introduced what the press called the most remarkable exhibit ever introduced in a New York court of law. Nesbitt's October 19, excuse me, Evelyn's October 1903 affidavit drafted in Abe Hummel's law office and produced for the case of Evelyn Nesbitt v. Harry, Harry K. Thaw. The affidavit described Evelyn's terrifying night in an Austrian castle during which she was approached by Harry with his eyes glaring and his hands grasping a rawhide whip. Evelyn in the affidavit asserted Thaw tried to choke me and inflicted on me several severe blows with a rawhide whip. As Evelyn screamed for help, Harry renewed his brutal attacks until I was unable to move. The affidavit asserted that never thereafter did Thaw did Harry attempt to make the slightest excuse for his conduct. Evelyn, in her statement, also alleged Harry was addicted to the taking of cocaine. Jerome called to the stand a parade of alienists, psychiatrists, were generally called at the time, who expressed their opinion and Thaw remained dangerously insane. The district attorney's sudden shift in his strategy led to an angry shouting match between attorneys. Jerome said the law left him have it both ways. Thaw is a paran is paranoid, and while he is insane, he is not insane in the eyes of the law. For strictly speaking, he knows the nature and quality of his acts. The district attorney concealed that conceded that he had considered requesting the court to appoint a lunacy commission to evaluate and submit a report on Thaw's condition and Delmas announced his opposition to the idea. Jerome quoted from an affidavit of alienist Dr. Carlos MacDonald, who stated that, which stated that, saw, that Thaw suffered from paranoia from which it is reasonably certain he will not recover, and that the discharge of said Harry K. Thaw would be dangerous to the public's peace and safety. A few days after arguments, on March 26th, Justice Fitzgerald announced that he had appointed a commission of disinterested psychiatric experts to prepare a report on Thaw's sanity or insanity. The first day of the commission's hearings included an extensive mental and physical examination of Thaw. The commission's questions and Thaw's answers were never made public. After his appearance, Evelyn told reporters Harry is cheerful and feels confident the commission will be decided in his favor. On April 4th, the commission announced its findings. No indication of insanity at the present could be found in the speech, conduct, or physical condition of the defendant. The, defend the commission concluded that Harry K. Thaw was and is sane and was not and is not in a state of idiocy, lunacy, or insanity. Thaw and the defense expressed a pleasure with his displeasure with this conclusion. It is only what I expected, declared Harry. I am as sane as any man on earth. 
So on April 8th, Delphine DeMoss delivered a memorial, a memorable summation for the defense. He said the story of Harry and Evan was the saddest, most mournful and tragic which the tongue of man has ever uttered or the ear of man has ever heard in a court of justice. It might, he said, have been written by the hand of Shakespeare. He reminded jurors of what happened to Evelyn after she was lured into the then evil genius who had promised to be her protector. White, he said, perpetrated the most horrible crime that can deface a human heart. Domas wondered whether the heart and heart of White could imagine that God could not hear the cry from Evelyn that went out that night into the darkness of the great city, or that God would not forget his promise that anyone who afflicted a fatherless child would surely die. Harry Thaw, Domas suggested to the jury, was an avenging agent of God. After he fired the fatal shots, he stood facing the audience with his arms spread out in form of the cross. Mr. Thaw stood as a priest might have stood out after some ceremony, a sacrificial offering, saying all is over and dismissing the congregation. Delmas appealed to the unwritten law. If Thaw is insane, Delmas said, then call it Dementia Americana. That is a species of insanity which makes every American man believe his home to be sacred. That is the species of insanity which makes him believe the honor of his daughter is sacred. That is the species of insanity which makes him believe the honor of his wife is sacred. That is the species of insanity which makes him believe that whosoever invades his home, that whoever stains the virtue of his threshold, has violated the highest human laws and must appeal to the mercy of God, if mercy there be for him anywhere in the universe. So closing for the state, William Jerome asked the jury whether it was also part of the unwritten higher law that a man may flaunt a woman through the capitals of Europe for two years at his mistress and then kill. This is not a case of dementia americana, Jerome said, but a common, vulgar, everyday tenderloin homicide. Why, Jerome wondered, would the angel child go back again and again and again to the great ogre who had supposedly wrecked her life? Let's blame the victim now. The answer, the DA asserted, came from Evelyn's own lips. I know of no one who is nicer or kinder than Stanford White, Jerome argued. You may paint Stanford White as in a black color as you wish, but there are no colors in the artist's black box enough to paint Harry Thaw. Jerome turned to a Bible for his conclusion. Will you gentlemen acquit a cold-blooded, cowardly, deliberate murderer on the ground of dementia Americana? If the only thing that lies between every man and his enemy is a brainstorm, let every man pack a gun. There are two things I want to say. They are, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and that the other law that was thundered from Mount Sinai, thou shalt not kill. Jury deliberations began at 5.15 p.m. on April 10, 1907. After more than 47 hours of debates, the jury returned to the conclusion courtroom to announce that it was hopelessly deadlocked. Justice Fitzgerald declared a mistrial and dismissed the jury. The final vote, it was later revealed, had been seven for conviction of murder in the first degree, 
in five for acquittal. So the second trial was shorter and less sensational, attracted less attention, and was most predictable in its outcome than the first. Thaw's new defense team calculated that an acquittal under self-defense or dementia Americana theory was not possible, and that the only by pleading insanity could the prison term be avoided. Let's get Harry sent off to the sane asylum, the defense reasoned, then worry later about proving him sane enough to be let out. The second trial opened on January 6, 1908, in the courtroom of Justice Victor K. Dowling. Pushing aside family scruples that affected the first trial, Thaw's new attorney, Martin W. Litton, Littleton, proceeded to lay bare the emotional troubled history of the Thaws. Instead of attacking Stanford White, Littleton concentrated on proving his client absolutely insane. Miss William Thaw testified not only about her son's strange behavior, but also about epileptic and weak-minded uncles who ended up in asylums. Harry's household nurses, who took care of him when he was only three or four years old, testified that he was moody, nervous, and had frequent spells during which he stared, twitched his mouth, threw himself back, and howled. Harry's kindergarten teacher remembered that Harry would tear off his clothes, throw chairs against the wall, and spend his energy on intimate, inanimate things. She testified, testified that after three years of dealing with Harry, she told his mother the child had a peculiar brain. A mathematics teacher during Harry's high school years recalled that Harry would stare, smile without warmth, and walk in a zigzag manner. Moving into Harry's adult, Littleton produced a witnesses, a series of physicians, and alienists, including a hotel physician in Paris who treated Harry after a probable suicide attempt using poison. Other doctors testified that they had diagnosed Thaw to be suffering from mania, paranoia, and other diseases of the mind. This consensus seemed to be that Thaw now suffered from manic-depressive insanity. Evelyn Thaw testified again in the second trial, but this time included evidence suggesting that Thaw was mentally unstable. For example, she told jurors that a few weeks after telling her tale of lost virginity, Harry attempted to poison himself by swallowing laudanum. On cross-examination, she conceded that this fact had been left out of her testimony in the previous trial at the insistence of defense attorney Del Moss, who said it would make him out too crazy. The district attorney, Jerome, again heeding the prosecution, argued in his summation that Thaw understood when he pulled the trigger at the rooftop theater that he was doing was wrong. As a matter of law, Jerome argued that made Thaw sane and responsible for his actions. Jerome ridiculed much of the testimony concerning Thaw's earlier life, suggesting, for example, that his, he, his fits of temper as a child were the ordinary spells for which other children received a good spanking. Concluding, Jerome told jurors that this was not an insanity case. It was a fight over poor little waif. The next day, the jury, the jury announced its verdict. We find the defendant not guilty on the grounds of insanity at the time of the commission of his acts. Just as Dowling dismissed the jury and took from his desk a memorandum and began reading it, Dowling declared that Thaw's discharge would be dangerous to public safety in order to be sent to the Maidawayan State Hospital for the criminally insane until thence discharged by due course of law. Harry Thaw, apparently expecting to be set free after the jury's verdict, and grew intensely angry upon hearing the judge's words. 
So now let's see what happens next. So seven years later, which in my opinion is very fast, in June 1915, a jury convened in the Supreme Court of New York to determine whether Harry Thaw was now sane enough to be released from made away in. Evelyn Thaw, having lost whatever feelings she had for Harry at the time of the murder trial, offered no testimony this time. In fact, she actually took up a temporary residence near the Canadian border so she could cross over in the event of a subpoena was headed her way. Harry calmly testified for over five hours as why he waited three years to kill whites. He replied, there is no answer to that question. I cannot give you one. There is no reason. The jury found Harry sane. Two days later, Harry Thaw was a free man. So, Harry's marriage managed to survive only a few months. In 1917, Harry severely whipped a 19-year-old boy, was arrested, and returned to the Sane Asylum, where he stayed until 1924. He died in 1947. So, I don't think he was quite cured, as they would call it, of insanity. After her divorce, Heron, sorry, Evelyn married her dance partner, Jack Clifford, but that marriage would prove to be short-lived. She never remarried. In 1955, a film entitled The Girl in the Velvet Swing, starring Joan Collins as Evelyn Nesbitt, rekindled interest in the Evelyn Nesbitt's White Thaw story. At the time of the movie's release, Evelyn Nesbitt was living quietly as a 74-year-old sculptor, in L.A., and she died in 1967 of natural causes. Okay, guys, so that is a very tragic story of the story of between three people, three people who got caught up in a love affair. Unfortunately, that ended in mur- murder, and I did not see it ending that way. Okay. Thank you.